On episode 122 of the Vincast, I chat with John Harris, the winemaker from Mitchell Harris Wines. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino, and uh, we are back with a new episode and uh, quite a few episodes coming up soon as well, which is really awesome. But uh, for this week, I chatted with a long-term friend and former colleague, John Harris, who is uh, the winemaker for Mitchell Harris Wines, uh, based in uh, in well, Ballarat there is where they have their awesome cellar door wine bar restaurant kind of thing. Um, but mo- mostly making wine from the Pyrenees region. And uh, John came down to uh, to the Vincast studio, as it is, and uh, and we had a, a great chat about his background. So I, I do hope you enjoy the episode. Please do stick around till the end to find out more about, uh, about Mitchell Harris and how to get in contact with both John and myself. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. John Harris, thank you very much for uh, for making some time coming down to, to Melbourne to be on the Vincast today. And someone... Who I've known for quite a while, you know, in my early wine career days, we uh, we happened to be working for the same company, and so someone I've wanted to have on the show for quite a while. So thank you for uh, for being on the show. Thank you for having me, uh, John. I start every episode by asking my guests if they can remember was it a particular uh, experience that you had in your life, an incident that set you on the path with wine, a, a memorable wine experience, or was it a a, a, regu- a regular a, a, a sort of slow gradual osmosis? Um, oh, look, I think it's just something I became interested in, you know, going back to the early nineties as a, as a impoverished university student, um, studying a science degree, um, wine just started appearing in the newspapers more and I found it fascinating. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, certain writers, um, the late great Mark Shield, um, yeah, I was fascinated by his writings. He, he, you know, wine was pretty much an unknown to me, but he he wrote about wine in a very unpretentious way that uh, I sort of liked, and it really um, sparked an interest. And yeah, I just started reading more about wine, and gradually started drinking wine from a pretty pretty low base, and then thought it was a worthy career, a bit more fun than the immunology and pathology degree I was studying at Monash at the time. Right. Okay. So wine wasn't necessarily something that um, your, your parents were super into when you were growing up. No, no, not at all. No, um, there's occasional bottles, um, but not not much at all. Oh, okay. And what got you interested in science? And where did you go? Are you from? Where are you from originally? I grew up around Ballarat. Okay, um, which is now home again. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we grew up in a rural area up there. A lot of my friends were going back on the farm, or you know. He- heading off to Melbourne and studying and whatever. And uh, we didn't have a farm to go back to. Um, we lived in a country area but weren't farmers. And, uh, yeah, just I studied science at school and, and thought a career in science was – I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with science. So, yeah, I, was, I just sort of got into microbiology. And I guess from there, you know, there was a little bit of – fermentation was, was one, of the, one of the subjects. And were, you, were you into beer as well? I was into drinking beer, um, <laughs> not very good beer, beer that I, I wouldn't normally drink now. Um, but 
yeah, not so much brewing, but into into drinking beer at the time, and uh, then just yeah went to a went to a wine tasting and spoke to some winemakers and asked you know how do you become a winemaker and you know they said oh go and do a, go and do a harvest go and do a vintage and so I did up at Brown Brothers in in the early nineties and um, yeah that just fell in love with wine from there and yeah then, okay. and then studied um, did the wine science degree um, after first couple of vintages. So, uh, so you threw yourself in fairly quickly into a career into the wine industry. Um, oh yeah, I, I, once I I've finished my science degree, just thought I'd better get that one under the belt. And yep. So, um, and then yeah, jumped jumped in, sort of left left Melbourne and um, went up to north northeast Victoria and did did a vintage up there and yeah, really fell in love with it. Came back to Melbourne, did a bit of work in in retail. Um, Little wine shop that uh, was at Daimaru, the the Japanese department store yeah. that used to be in Melbourne Central. Of course, best and, like amazing okonomiyaki they had yeah. on the ground floor. <laughs> yep. Um, so I worked there, and yeah, really had a had a great boss there that really uh, encouraged me to try wines from here, there, and everywhere. And um, yeah, just sort of took it from there, and then you know enrolled in the the Charles Sturt Uni. Wine making course um, was was wine making something you thought about that that's specifically what you wanted to do or was it something you just wanted to work in the wine industry? Um, I don't know really. I just I th- I think wine making is what I wanted to do. Like okay. having grown up, did the science um, studies help in that way? Oh, I think the- it saved me a year of part one year of part time <laughs> study. So sure. uh, look, it helped. It, and yeah, you know, it was good grounding. Um, and. But yeah, you know, not really knowing what I wanted to do with with a science degree, um, being able to jump in and be straight into some good juicy wine subjects up at Charles Sturt. That yep. was that was it. That was I was hooked, and um, so I sort of did that part time over about five years. Worked. Um, so in a so you, of were, you were an internal student at that time? No, external. Just external. Did it all. I had a I had a wine habit to support. So I didn't want to go back to being a full time student. So, so you, um, so you, st- you studied and worked at the same time. Yeah, and that was when you were working in Melbourne. No, that was um, I went back working up in the Pyrenees. Right. Okay. So that was uh, sort of went back home um, for a little while and worked for a few years in the Pyrenees while I was studying winemaking, doing that part time, and um, yeah, then ended up down in the Yarra Valley. Yeah. Okay. Um, in the year two thousand. Yeah. Right. How did you find the the winemaking studies, uh, particularly the challenges of doing it externally? Oh, it was good. It was great. Um, you know, to work, to learn more on on the job um, was was a great way to do it. I think to get hands on experience, um, sort of in a in a cellar, mm-hmm. uh, in a numerous cellars, and then um, you know to be able to graduate with five years experience was was a great way to do it. I think. Mm. Did you have much contact with uh, fellow students, for example? Oh, absolutely. Like we, um, you know, you'd stay in close contact, and of course, you had you know three or four weeks of residential, um, you know, le- uh, lectures and you know all your pra- practical classes and things like that. So, and a, a lot of sharing of bottles, and, mm. um, and that was that was a part of the experience. Was that um, yeah the camaraderie. Over a few good bottles of wine um, with you know guys that uh, are in the in the business was was great fun and that was as you know as input. you learn as much in the bar on a on a Thursday night as you did in some <laughs> of the lectures so it, it was good 
Really good. As long as you can remember some of it the next day. Yes. Um, and so no doubt a lot of these uh, fellow students were all working winemakers as well from different regions in yeah, Australia. Yeah, um, winemakers and um, grape growers as sure. well. So, okay. um, yeah, I have quite a few mates that are growing grapes and, and guys that are guys and girls that um, are winemaking here, there and everywhere and um, or doing other things um, mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it was it was great. Like yeah, back in back in those days, and you know, I'm showing my age a little bit, but we're talking 20 years ago, um, 15, 20 years ago. You know, there were there were good jobs, good opportunities um, to be a career winemaker. Yeah. Um, these days, yeah, you know, there's a lot of people just doing their own thing, sure. you know, learning a little bit about making wine and you know starting their own own wine business. Not, yeah. Not having to work for someone else. Like you know, there's with plentiful grapes around. Everyone's a winemaker these days. That, those early days for you, that was very much in the heart of that kind of big second boom for Australian wine, both domestically and overseas. Oh, yeah. A lot of really solid vintages, particularly red wine vintages, the late 90s, um, and then obviously drought kind of yep. kicked off and <laughs> never seemed to end. Um, but it w- must have been exciting, like a lot of – um, it was a very dynamic time for Australian wine and uh, I, I guess, as you said, there's sort of a lot of growth and a lot of opportunities for career winemakers. Oh, absolutely. It was, um, you know, this is in the, the good old days where I went, when the wine industry was just exploding, like the massive, um, you know, when the, the doubling, the, the 2025 strategy um, or whatever it was where they're going to double, you know, Australia's, exports and the area of vines, you know, that happened not in 25 years, it happened in... 10 years, I think. Oh, it? yeah, less, yeah. five years. Yeah, they yeah. planted all the grapes. And so, yeah, and there was, you know, great times for growth. You know, the UK and the US were discovering Australian wines and, you know, Australian sunshine in a bottle and big ripe reds and all these things. You know, it was, um, yeah, it was great. It was great fun for for a long time there. And then, then the oversupply sort of hit a few years later. Sure. You were working these as as you were saying the a lot in the Pyrenees, yep. which obviously it's a region close to you now, but yeah. also you know from where you're from originally. What was the what what was it like in the Pyrenees region back in those days? Was a lot of was there a lot of development going on there as well? Oh, I think yeah, a lot of the development in the Pyrenees was sort of in the in the um, or the early development was really in the seventies mm-hmm. um, where the you know the big guys got established, your Taltanis and Blue Pyrenees and. Um, but then, yeah, there were, there were lots of plantings there and all these tax minimization schemes. There were a couple of big vineyards planted there. Um, and so, yeah, they were big projects, but there mm-hmm. were still, you know, quite a few, just the businesses that had been there for, you know, 20 years or so were, were still doing their thing. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, it hasn't, hasn't changed a lot, um, mm. really the Pyrenees. There, mm. has, there hasn't, thankfully there hasn't been too many big vineyard planting since, you know, the last thing. We want to do is contribute to the oversupply, but so it's it's good. There's good demand for fruit um, in that it's part still of the world. A, it's still a somewhat marginal region for for great production. You know, it's, it is on the cooler side, so it's not necessarily a big oh, irrigated zone like no, you no, find no, on, along the Murray or something like that. Yeah, I mean, wa- water is the biggest limiting factor yep. um, in the in the Pyrenees, and yeah, you know, certainly through. Yeah, you know, the last ten to fifteen years with a with a changing climate, there's been some very challenging vintages in terms of drought. Mm. But um, and you know we had a had a wet one in 2011 that, with lots of flooding in the in the area. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, you know, it's good. There's some great great uh, 
vineyards in, in the Pyrenees and, you know, from, from sparkling. There's very good sparkling producers up there as well. And then, you know, your full-bodied reds probably capture the most attention. I think yeah, around 50% of the plantings are Shiraz um, and Cabernet Sauvignon and then, you know, Chardonnay for and a bit of Pinot for sparkling and then, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and... Now we're seeing you know Italian varieties and and Spanish varieties mm-hmm. emerging as well, so it's um yeah, it's good. So taking it back, yep. You finished your studies. How long after you finished your studies did you start working in the Yarra Valley? And this was so uh, pretty much that was Shandon? the year two thousand. I started at at uh, Shandon. I'd gra- I'd finished studying mm-hmm. the year before, mm-hmm. so graduated early two thousand, and then one of the one of my colleagues um, from Charles Sturt Uni asked me to come and work at Shandon, come and do vintage. That was James Gosper. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we were, we were good mates. So I came along for vintage and, and didn't leave. Mm. Um, so it was, the timing was right. The, you know, they were going through expansion and very um, much so. Yeah, that's what so, I was thinking, yeah. you know, I sort of got in at assistant winemaker level there and, um, you know, I sort of worked my way up to sparkling winemaker and did that for a few years before Deciding it's time to head head home. Ed, 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 when you joined Shandon, uh, what was the, the winemaking team? How many there was a, a chief winemaker and a number of assistant winemakers, or sort of oh, there wasn't really. There, wine was, there was a it couple was of winemakers. There was sort of there was a you know sparkling was a big part of their business. So you had a, a sparkling winemaker, essentially a, a an assistant winemaker who also did lab work and a couple of cellar hands. Um, as well as um, not Tony Jordan was overseeing production, was mm-hmm. CEO mm-hmm. and senior winemaker, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was a smaller team. I was out there a few weeks ago. It's a different beast now. Yeah. I, I'm a former guest of the podcast. Dan Buckle obviously has been in oh, charge yeah. for a few years now. And, uh, uh, you know, seeing some of the recent developments and obviously Keithy and, and, and Glenn have been, uh, they've all been working on, this new project, which is uh, was interesting to read about, but uh, at, at the time, obviously, yeah, there was a lot of expansion going on, and, and sparkling wine continues to be the, you know, the, obviously the hugest part of their business. But what what experience did you had with sparkling before then, and and did the, the experience at Chandon really get you interested in in sparkling wine? Oh, absolutely! I I had very little sparkling experience um, before Chandon. It's exactly uh-huh. like I like like me when I started the cellar door there. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, I did. Plenty of cellar experience, mm-hmm. um, but hadn't done traditional method sparkling wine. So um, was it was, that, good was, it, was it a bit of a, a culture shock? Oh, not a culture shock. It was a, a learning curve. Sure. Um, it was yeah, it was fascinating, like tasting. I remember my first assemblage tastings and going in and trying to make write all these intricate notes about flavors and aromas of base wines, which mm-hmm. is you know really hard to get a lot out of of some base wines that can be. Um, yeah, not as generous, a, and, a lot more neutral than, uh, than yeah, but and then and higher acidity. And talking with the likes of, of you know, Wayne Donaldson and, sure. and James there and Tony, and you know, it was you started talking instead about flavor and aroma, thinking about palate structure and acid and phenolic um, interactions in the mouth and, and describing base wines in terms of their structure rather than um, flavor and aroma first, you know, generosity and length and. Yeah, that was that was quite a change, and then you know, going looking at all the individual components and and you know looking at blending and how they different base wines go together. So that was that was certainly a learning curve. And then 
um, yeah, just the whole traditional method process, um, what's in, what's involved. Um, yeah, it was new to me at the time, but, uh, yeah, it became very familiar after some time. And, and one of the other challenges uh, with sparkling wine production, of course, is, is the growing of the grapes and, you know, working in those specific varieties, but, you know, in very cool climate sites. Did you have the opportunity to, to, to travel to, to the, out to the vineyards and kind of look at them? And was it difficult to, as far as making picking decisions, considering that the, the, the grapes were going for sparkling production rather than table production? Um, no, not really. I think, um, you know, like... Like any, depending on whatever wine style you're making, it's all, all about tasting sure. and um, how the grapes taste. But you also, you know, you, you pick grapes and you taste grapes with a um, end purpose um, in mind. So, um, so if you're wanting to make really fine, delicate, sparkling wines, you, you're looking for different things. If you're making full-bodied reds, for example, and so yeah, you and you know, we'd spend a lot of time. I'd spend the last. Yeah, you know, you'd spend more time during harvest traveling around vineyards than you were actually in the cellar. Mm-hmm. Like that, that was, you know, when we, I think the last year I was at Chandon, 2007, we were making, um, we were making base wines in about 14 different wineries, like dotted around Australia and Western Australia and Tasmania and um, several different processing sites all around the place. And so there's a lot of travel involved. Um, to the vineyards and to the other proce- processing wineries. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we were shipping juice all around the country, across the Nullarbor. And um, so, yeah, you spend a lot of time travelling and just in the vineyards just trying to, you know, as a, as a winemaker, one of the most important decisions you make is when to pick. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that applies for still wines as it does sparkling. And you would have uh, no doubt made some good relationships with some of the growers that, that you know, that Chenham was uh, obviously at some of the vineyards they own, but they yep. were buying a lot of fruit. So did, was that, was that a, a good experience as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was that was great fun myself and the viticulturalist Bernie, who you would remember. Um, you would, yeah. yeah, we you know we spent a lot a lot of time together, perhaps too much time together. Um, uh, drive just driving around and yeah, grower relationships and you know it's like any any business having good good relationships all the way from um, you know. From paddock to plate is is vital for any successful business, and yeah, it's an important part of what we what we did um, and what we do. And uh, is yeah, having a good relationship with the grower who knows you know what what uh, what you're after in terms of fruit, in terms of you know quality, quantity, um, and how to manage the the vines is yeah, it's vital. You can't you can't make good good wine without uh, getting you know good fruit and having someone to grow those grapes with a bit of care and attention. Did you have any uh, soft spot uh, vineyards in, in when you, that you were working with? Um, oh, yeah, there's always favourites, um, and uh, not ironically, but uh, coincidentally now it's one, one vineyard that we're now working with. Um, there you go. Uh, it, was, it used to be the Portree Vineyard in the Macedon Ranges. It was, grew fantastic Chardonnay and Pinot for sparkling, and... Uh, New owner, um, Ben Rankin, who's a winemaker at Gowie. And, uh, he, future guest. Yeah, future guest. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, so him and his wife, Sally, have bought that property. And, yep. um, and yeah, we're now lucky enough to get a couple of tonnes of Chardonnay um, from oh, now the Willamie Vineyard, as it's now known. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's fantastic fruit, beautiful fruit. Um, it really provides the core for our sparkling wine, mm-hmm. Sabre. 
So yeah, it's great. It's our sort of starting starting point for the blend. Another important part of the traveling thing would have been uh, getting out into the market, and you no doubt you would have, uh, you know, in different states of Australia, yeah. but also uh, into export markets. Was that uh, is- an interesting uh, experience? Oh, it's great. It's um, you know, it's always good to get out in the market, especially you know, as oh, when I was younger, the travel was you know, a good part of the job. It loses its novelty after a while but yeah we used to you know i'd probably spend seven weeks a year um in international markets and probably three or four weeks in the domestic market um yeah promoting the wines doing tastings um here there and everywhere and um yeah it was a great way to see the world um combine that with um you know other wine making visits and, and technical visits to some of the other estates and other um wine growing regions spending a bit of time in champagne no doubt yeah, we went there a few times. It was good. Uh, it was, <laughs> oh well, it's you know the the you know the knowledge base there and the, and the sharing of, of knowledge um, with with the parent company at, at Chandon was um, yeah very important. Mm-hmm. So um, when you made the shift uh, away from uh, the Yarra Valley back yep. to um, the Pyrenees, um, you started working for Mount Avoca. Yeah, I was at Mount Avoca. Yep. Yep. And and that was also when you started the the Mitchell Harris. Yeah, we did part project. of part of that was you know we we had in mind that we were going to start. I wanted to make my own sparkling wine. Um, I couldn't do it while I was working at Chandon, so that was part of the motivation was to if we want to do this, um, yeah, we need to yeah I needed to have a real job to pay the bills. You can't just um, flick a switch and start generating money. Not if you're trying to make traditional methods sparkling wines. Um, yeah, it takes takes a long time. So yeah, I had a had a real job, um, and then just started making a bit of wine. We we made uh, we well the first grapes we picked were some Chardonnay and Pinot Noir from Macedon um, mm-hmm. for Sabre, the sparkling wine, and it was knowing that you know it was probably going to be four years before. Um, that wine was going to be released, and you've already invested a lot of money. We we decided to um, start developing the Mitchell Harris brand, and uh, I was making wine for a few people up in the Pyrenees. And yep. so, um, you know, I bought a couple of barrels of um, various bits and pieces, and, and put my own blends together um, from from those other contract clients that I had. And yeah, we put we released released the first wines at the end of two thousand and eight. Was there any particular idea in mind for Mitchell Harris? Was it just sort of wines that you liked, or did you have a wanted to have a, a possibly a regional focus? What 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 did you have in mind apart um, from making great wine? Very much regional focus. Like we try to work with vineyards around our hometown of Ballarat, yep. and so um, the Pyrenees. You know, there hasn't and there isn't um, you know fruit available um, much in in the Ballarat region. It's very very tiny. Um, yeah, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir mainly. Mm-hmm. Um, but up in the Pyrenees, there was a bit more fruit available. So we, um, I guess, looked at their strengths, um, Shiraz and Cabernet Sauvignon uh, initially, and then also a Sauvignon Blanc in the Fumé style, which has you know, quickly become our biggest selling wine, the, the Sauvignon Blanc. Where, where did the, the inspiration for that one come from? Were you, were you influenced by any particular styles? or? Well, regions? I guess from you know, time at Chandon, a sister company, Cloudy Bay. Sure. Where, um, the Tococo um, barrel fermented Sauvignon Blanc, I guess, yeah. was of real interest. And so, yeah, right from the get-go with the first Sauvignon Blanc that we made in 2008, 
yeah, we decided we'd do that barrel fermented and sort of wild yeast aid, our wild yeast fermented style, just a bit more, you know, we're talking back in 2008, I think it was almost peak um, savalanche, if you like, from um, New Zealand. So Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc was just dominating the market. Mm. Um, and so we wanted to do something completely different um, to that. And, yeah, knowing that, you know, we get some good results with Sauvignon Blanc in the in the Pyrenees, slightly warmer, getting less of that herbaceous sort of character and combined with a bit of barrel fermentation and, and lees ageing, um, yeah, gave us a, a good sort of full-bodied textural Sauvignon Blanc um, that we really like to drink, mm-hmm. basically. It was, it was, and it's slightly more interesting with food as well. Well, exactly. It's much better food wines. I mean, some of those, those really herbaceous um, and almost... Um, you know, I call them the, the fruit tingle and battery acid styles. They're very hard to pair with food. Um, you know, a bit of goat's cheese and asparagus. Um, I don't know what else. <laughs> so, yeah, we wanted to make something a bit more textural um, and a bit more interesting and, yeah, certainly um, are better better food wines, that's for sure. Yeah, right, okay. Uh, so you were making the wines in, in the Pyrenees at, these, at this stage? Yeah, I was, I was making them when I was at Mount Avoca, so um had couple of barrels in, in the corner and, um, yeah, I was one of um, about five other contract clients we had at the time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, we we were doing that and I think after about four years um, it was time to um, go all in and around that, that same time I think we, we realised that, you know, we wanted to set up a – we needed a place to call home. You know, we didn't have our own winery and we didn't own any vineyards and so – we started thinking about doing the, the urban cellador, if you like, uh, and in, in Ballarat um, there wasn't really anything quite like it and sort of not much in the way of wine bars. So There's, there's still nothing not much quite like it really. Like I don't, I don't know a lot of, you know, like you say, like cellar doors in towns. Yep. It was something that I encountered a lot in the US, particularly, mm-hmm. you know, in the western states and California, Oregon, Washington. Uh, I found that like there'd be these little sort of – hubs of maybe a dozen different yep. sort of wine brands and they had like a little shop front and that was basically their cellar door. It was, it was not very common, only the really big or, you know, wealthy wineries that actually had cellar doors yep. at their winery. Well, I mean, we, I mean, looking at the success of say Giant Steps in Hillsville yeah. when we were living out there and we thought, well, you know, it's, you know, working up in the, in the Pyrenees, you know, you'd be lucky some yeah you know, there wasn't much there wasn't much traffic around there weren't many people you know in the middle of the week driving up the driveway to sell the doors and so we figured it's you know seeing that we didn't have our own investment at, at that time in in the region there was no you know we decided if we're going to do a cellar door um let's do it where the people are and yep. there were opportunities in Ballarat um that's a decent and, population in Ballarat yeah growing population and, too. and tourism as well yeah so that, and that's look that's really all emerged in the last five years it's um it was a sleepy sleepy hollow when it came to eating and drinking um there weren't a lot of options um and but that's all changing and we've got um, you know, a lot of people moving to Ballarat. The demographic of Ballarat is changing, um, and it's yeah, a really exciting time to. Um, and so yeah, in 2011 we we opened. Um, or 2011, yeah, I went full time into Mitchell Harris, and at that same time, um, we purchased the the building where the the cellar door and the wine bar now is in in the heart of Ballarat. Yep. And yeah, so we in the next 15 months or so we. 
project managed getting that um, getting that out and uh, up and running and, and renovated and, and presentable. What was an old um, electric motor workshop and you know, nearly a hundred and fifty year old building. Mm. Um, that was essentially a it was a tent makers and a produce you know grain and produce merchants um, back in the eighteen seventies. Amazing and history. Yeah, it's a great old building. You've you've been there, and I it's have. um a couple it's, of times. Uh, so it's been really rewarding to you know give the old building a, a bit of a bit of a clean and uh, give it a bit of love and, and turn it into you know what we're really hoping is uh, a bit of a hub for Western Victorian wine. So we we have a strong bias towards. The wines from Western Victoria, from Ballarat, Pyrenees, Grampians, sort of Henty region, um, and then sort of our, our neighbouring regions, plus you know, interesting little bits and pieces from here, there, and everywhere. Mm. And and that must be one of the fun things for yourself is not only are you able to you know show your wines that you've made, um, you're not only able to kind of profile other great wines from that part of Victoria, but also wines that you are interested in and inspired by. Like, do, how do you go about kind of selecting what wines beyond the Mitchell Harris wines to, to show in the in the, um, in the I, bar? I guess we're looking for uh, just wines of real interest. Like, you know, the basic, would I drink them? <laughs> um, it's But it's, yeah, really trying to support the, you know, the guys that aren't getting floor stacked. In the big supermarket chains, sure, and or getting, you know, stocked in every cafe and pub around town. It's like really something that, you know, we don't might not be the only place you can get it in Ballarat, but it's something um, that, yeah, you know, isn't stocked everywhere. That um, and and something that's a really good good drink when it comes down to it, it needs to be um, something we all like to share and 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 want our our guests to enjoy. And mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and we we thought part of part of our reason um, for for being is that yeah we wanted to showcase the the best wines of Western Victoria and sort of you know encourage people to get out and about, get out to the regions, go and visit your cellar doors, um, come and ta- have a glass with us in the evening, and then jump in the car the next day and go out and um, visit the visit you know the Pyrenees or the Grampians and yeah um, yeah because that's that's where. That's where the value is for the for the winemakers is you know people coming up the driveway. That's that's where it's at, and um, really promote the region. What was the idea as far as the food offering? Oh, look, it constantly evolves. Like in the early days, it used to be you know, it used to be something that I could plate up and prepare, um, and it's really good things to go with a glass of wine is the is the basics. Um, and so yeah, we have your you know, cheese board, produce boards, and. It just it varies quite a seasonal menu, so um, we we change it regularly, and um, it just needs to be you know, good things to have with a glass of wine, really. Mm. Um, and that it varies in complexity. We are offering um, yeah, Japanese um, lunch oh. on Wednesday and Thursday, which is becoming really popular. Um, one of our Do you have guest our, chefs come in for, for that. Oh, uh, one of our chefs is is trained um, and oh, cool. is doing a great job. So he. Albert does a great job on Wednesdays and Thursdays, um, and you know Japanese food's great for, for a glass of wine, glass of bubbles, or yeah, something especially like that. with perfect wine. Yeah. Um, how has the, the the range of wines that you make evolved uh, over the years? Like, you know, there's probably a yep. little bit more uh, now than there were in the, in the early days. Yeah, there is. Um, look, when we started, we wanted to make sparkling wine. Like, you know, there were quite a few people, not unlike ourselves, 
starting their own little wine businesses and you know, often making Chardonnay or Pinot or Shiraz, depending on where they are, where they were. And so we went in probably you know, somewhat foolishly because it's a bloody expensive exercise making mm. traditional method sparkling wine. But that was that was our strength. That was um, yeah, and, and it's still a growing market for sparkling wine as well. Yeah, it's uh, we can't. Well, we could we could make more, but um, we're. But so yeah, we start off with even sa- if you did, sober. we have to wait a few years for it. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely, and yeah, you know, product depending depending on the season. Yeah, you know, we we don't make a heap. We're talking a few hundred cases of sparkling. Yeah, um, and we also and then right from the get go, we did a Sauvignon Blanc as we talked about earlier, um, a Shiraz. That sort of cool climate, elegant style of Shiraz, or cool, cool climate style. Um, so more the spicy, elegant. When a lot of guys sort of up in our part of the world were aiming for bigger is best, mm-hmm. we were sort of picking a bit earlier and trying to get something with a bit more finesse, if you like. And and then Cabernet Sauvignon as well still is pretty strong for us when it's, um, you know, it's a pretty challenging um, variety at the moment out, out there in the market, um, but a region that uh, – a variety that the region, the Pyrenees, does really well. And mm. so, yeah, those three um, varietal wines have been the core of our business. And then, you know, it's, as a winemaker, it's irresistible when people call you up and say, right, I've got a ton of Sangiovese or are you interested in Mataro or would you like some Grenache? Um, and so, yeah, we have over the years we've done um, a Mataro, uh, Sangiovese. Um, we've got the last of those wines from... 2014, we've, we haven't continued with those. Um, and then this year, very exciting for us, we um, have made some Chardonnay and Pinot from Ballarat Fruit. Oh, there you um, go. So that was a good opportunity to... Are they the first, like, Ballarat GI wines you've made? Yes. Yep. Oh. Uh, so, um, yeah, the White Wick Vineyard, just out of Ballarat, between Ballarat and Creswick. Um, so, yeah, we'll hopefully in about another six months' time we'll have a... Chardonnay and Pinot on the market from the 2017 vintage. Are they only going to be available in the in the Ballarat location? <laughs> um, oh, depends how good I am at getting out there and selling them. Um, uh, yeah, look, they'll certainly be available at Cellador. Um, there'll only be probably a hundred dozen of each. It's only a small make, but um, that's enough. And now, um, one of the amazing things that you've done as far as getting people to, to come and visit, coming to Ballarat, was uh, you've, you've been doing the urban winery uh, project more recently and punters are able to, to come and learn by doing uh, as far as how to make wine. Yeah, absolutely. The, well, the curious winemaker, we call it. Um, and it's a yeah, year-long project where um, a group of um, our customers and um, or whoever really um, gets gets to make a, a barrel or two of wine, and uh, we make that at in the in the wine bar um, out the back in in Ballarat. And so yeah, I bring the fruit in. We've made Shiraz the last few years, and so we have yeah about thirty or so people um, pay up, and it's yeah we start out in the vineyard. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, they pick the grapes. Um, I bring them into Ballarat and we ferment them out the back of the wine bar. And then throughout the year, we'll do a couple of tastings um, and just like benchmark tastings, taste lots of different Shiraz from all around the the world. And then at the end of the year, we bottle it up and everyone gets a box of wine with their name on the back as, as the winemaker. And that's that's been a really good exercise. It's, you know, it's really good for me just to be – it's all hands – Hands on, um, the wine 
barely gets pumped. It's all just hand pressed and yeah, bucketed and siphoned and um and it's really good just to be able to make something you know, very interesting and different to our more com- our commercial range of wines. Mm. And it's um yeah, you know, it's really satisfying as a winemaker just to pair it back to just the bare basics, to be able to do it without fancy equipment and um just some good fruit and all hands on. It's um yeah, it's good. I think the people that are doing it, are participating in it, really enjoy it as well. You know, we've got people that have come back doing their second and third years of, of winemaking because it's good fun. We've got, you know, couples doing it, retired couples, um, groups of mates. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's good, good exercise. It's a good fun. gift. Yeah. yeah. If, if, if you have uh, someone in your life that is really interested in wine, you know, why not buy them for for Christmas? Perfect. You know, a, a, a membership yeah. <laughs> for uh, for the 2018 project. Yeah, we've got a few people signed up already. Um, so it's it's good. We you know one one hogshead will be you know about 25 um, people will uh, get a, a case of wine out of that, and plus a couple left for us, mm-hmm. and a couple to sell at the in the cellar door as well. People can actually taste it and, and like before they get it, you know, try yeah, before you buy one. Yeah, it's, it's, really, it's just a really good, um, you know, as a wine business, it's a good way to engage with yeah. um, with the public and and build and, build the fan base if you like. It's, and it's good sharing with them that that first experience that you probably would have had when you first started making wine and kind of going, oh, cool! It's like yeah. doing something with your hands and and ending up with with something that you've made. You know, oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I've been making wine for 20 years and, yeah, it's it's still very satisfying to just do, yeah, half a tonne or a tonne of grapes um, by hand and, you know, for, for the participants to, you know, touch it and feel it and smell it and, um, you know, hop in there and give it a, give it a stomp. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it's, yeah, really that tactileness of, of hands-on winemaking. Um, it's a great experience and just um, they get to... Get to see it and feel it and live it for a little while and, um, yeah, hopefully uh, they're all satisfied with the box of wine they get to take home um, at the end of the year. Absolutely. Well, uh, look, I, and as you said, I have uh, had the, the great pleasure of uh, visiting the cellar door. I've actually opened uh, one one of the Mitchell Harris wines on my YouTube channel and also one of the wines uh, for the Curious Winemaker Project. Yep. Yes, uh, um, our, our mutual friend, Alicia, uh, very generously gave me one of her bottles. All oh, right, yeah, you tried uh, that. I did, and I, I, I shared my experience yeah. on the on the YouTube yeah. channel, so that was fantastic. But uh, uh, I really do encourage people to, to head out to Ballarat. Uh, obviously, like you were saying, there's a lot more going on there now, um, mm-hmm. some really exciting places to eat and drink and, uh, and you know – Get out, explore Victoria. There's so much more exciting, exciting stuff. Obviously, the Yarra Valley Mornington Peninsula, you know, very developed as far as tourism. But uh, head out to some of the other regions of Victoria because um, there's some really beautiful parts, particularly that Western Victorian part. Absolutely. But yeah. thank you, John. Uh, I really do appreciate you making the time and, and coming and recording here in the, the Vincast studio. Um, would you like to share with people um, website, social media channels? Oh, yeah, yeah I guess – um, Oh well, yeah. On the usual channels, you know, we're the, our website mitchellharris.com.au, where I'm on Facebook and Twitter, and lots of nice photos on Instagram as well. We shouldn't be too hard to find. So, um, yeah, we and you know, we look forward to seeing people um, in Ballarat at our cellar door. And yeah, we're only sort of an hour and a bit up the road from Melbourne, and easy to get to.
Fantastic. But, uh, and I, 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 you've brought along some wines for me as well. So I'm really excited to open up the wines on the YouTube channel and, and, and see what's been happening. But uh, thanks again for, for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks, James. And thank you, listeners, for joining me on this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gersbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. And you can follow me on social media at Intrepid Wino on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, I'd love for you to come and visit me at intrepidwino.com. There's lots of different content there, as well as ways of getting in contact with me. Uh, and uh, please do check out some of the uh, YouTube videos on my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino, including my uh, video tasting. Uh, Mitchell Harris wines uh, and thanks to John of course for uh, donating some bottles to, uh, for, for me to taste. Uh, I'd like to thank obviously Earbuds, the uh, podcast network here in Melbourne for their support ongoing. Uh, please do check out some of the other fantastic podcasts on the Earbuds network. Uh, you can find them on Facebook and online as well. Uh, please do subscribe to the podcast on iTunes Player FM, Stitcher, Podbean any number of different uh, podcast sharing programs uh, subscribing means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available and you can also leave a 5 star rating and a review which really does help me uh, reach more audience and provides great feedback to listeners, uh, guests and myself so please uh, head to any of those uh, platforms particularly iTunes uh, and leave me some feedback but uh, guys until next time, bye Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. EarbudsNetwork.com.